The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Jesse Isinger is a business and financial reporter whose work has appeared in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Washington Post. He and a colleague won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting for a series of stories on questionable Wall Street practices that led to the recent financial crisis. He's a senior reporter and editor at ProPublica, and he has just published his first book. The title includes a profanity that I'm not allowed to say on the radio, so I will say that the phrase in question means coward. The chicken, expletive deleted, club, why the Justice Department fails to prosecute executives about the evolution of the Justice Department's approach to pursuing corporate criminals and why no individuals were held to account for the 2008 financial crisis. Jesse, bringing us up to the present, Do you think it any more likely that today financial executives would be held any more to uh, account for their role in the next crisis than the last crisis? No, I don't, uh, because I don't think this is an issue of personnel or policy. It's an issue of will and ability. I argue that prosecutors now have lost the will and ability to investigate, uh, indict, and successfully prosecute top corporate executives uh, after a long series of changes in the culture at the Department of Justice, along with a loss of tools and weapons that they used to use to prosecute these cases. Now, there must be a very good story behind the title of the book, knowing that the profanity would pose some problems for you and for us here on the radio. What's the story? Yes, I'm sorry to uh, have caused the uh, FCC some consternation. Well, the story is, it's a line that comes from a Jim Comey speech, and listeners will know Jim Comey from uh, recently being fired as FBI director by FBI director by Donald Trump, uh, but 15 years ago, he was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Southern District is 
one of the most, if not the most, powerful offices of the Department of Justice. And it is the premier office for corporate crime, especially securities fraud. And Comey gathered all of his criminal prosecutors together, and these guys are the best of the best. They've gone to the best schools and had the best clerkships, and he asked them about their trial record. He said, how many of you guys have never lost a case? And these guys think of themselves the best trial lawyers in the country, and they shot their hands up, uh, the ones that had undefeated records. And uh, Comey looked around the room and said, well, my buddies and I have a name for you guys. You are the chicken S club, and the hands go down quickly. And what he was trying to say was, you're not about winning. You're not about racking up an undefeated record and taking on low-hanging fruit. You're about justice, and justice requires ambition, and it requires taking on the most powerful wrongdoers in society. And sometimes if you lose, you lose. You still have done justice. That's a great point. After every financial crisis, individuals went to jail, but not this last one. What's the simplest answer to why only one individual was prosecuted for the 08 financial crisis? The the oversimplified answer is that they didn't really look for criminals, and if you don't look for them, you won't find them. Uh, They made a series of decisions to uh, not investigate this financial crisis in the same way that they've investigated past financial crises, such as the as one that you're absolutely familiar with um, from your time at the SEC, the accounting pandemic crisis of the late 1990s that resulted in Enron's failure and WorldCom and Adelphia and Tyco and many others. Um, then they prosecuted almost all the top executives from almost all the major fraud fraud fraudulent companies. And in this case, they didn't really prioritize these investigations, and they farmed them out to offices that didn't have the skill set. And when they came up empty, it shouldn't have surprised anybody. Can you name some names of those who uh, could have been indicted for the 2008 crisis? Well, I'm not a lawyer, and the book is not a legal brief. Um, I discuss in depth the investigation or lack thereof into Lehman Brothers by the Department of Justice, um, where I think there may have been crimes committed, and uh, AIG, especially AIG financial products, where I believe there may have been crimes committed and uh, prosecutors thought that there could have been indictments brought. The people who did the who were closest to that investigation believe that they should have brought indictments against uh, executives, and they didn't. And so I walked through that. But it really is a larger issue of uh, a lack of focus, a lack of prioritization, and often a lack of power. The prosecutors now have been stripped of tools and weapons they use in these prosecutions, um, and they have grappled with that lack of these tools, and therefore they don't realize um, that they have lost some institutional knowledge and skill set. Jesse, Eric Holder said that it was too difficult to prosecute the major banks because it might have a negative impact on the national economy and even world economy. Do you agree, and is this still the case? I agree that he thought that, uh, and I agree that it infected the way he and um, his appointees and people like Lanny Brewer, who's the head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice, 
that they thought of it that way. Uh, I do not agree that um, prosecuting companies would have necessarily exacerbated the financial crisis or um, should have been a major criteria for this. Well, but there are several problems with this argument. One is that it doesn't explain why you wouldn't go after individuals. Because uh, if you prosecute the CEO of an investment bank like uh, Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, you're not um, running the risk of destabilizing the markets by putting one of those banks out of business. Two, it doesn't explain why they didn't prosecute more aggressively at the companies that were no longer in existence, like Washington Mutual or Lehman Brothers. So I think that there's some serious inadequacies with this explanation. Uh, what happened was they learned a bad lesson from the prosecution of Arthur Anderson. They learned that prosecuting companies is a dangerous thing. And after that, they decided they couldn't do it anymore. And yet I think the Arthur Anderson prosecution was one of the most important in the history of the Justice Department and the commission. I completely agree with you, and um, if I could do one thing in this book, it would be to successfully rehabilitate that prosecution, and I walk through that in the chapter, and it is a remarkable story, because Arthur Anderson was, in my view, and you know this better than I do, there's nobody more expert than you, um, that Arthur Anderson was a recidivist um, bad actor, uh, I would say a corrupt organization that had not just been the handmaiden to accounting fraud at Arthur Anderson, but Waste Management and Sunbeam and subsequently WorldCom and many others. And um, they had also settled with your SEC on Waste Management, if I'm uh, not mistaken, um, and promised not to uh, enable any more accounting fraud. And then they were negotiating with the Department of Justice over Arthur en uh, over Enron, and they would not admit that they'd done anything wrong, and the Department of Justice had no other choice but to prosecute. They won a trial. Um, it was a successful prosecution. Um, Arthur Anderson had done something absolutely egregious. They had destroyed literally tons of documents and emails related to the Anderson, uh, sorry, related to the Enron audit. And so they really destroyed evidence and obstructed justice. And um, they successfully won a trial, as I say. And then something remarkable happens, which is that the Department of Justice ends up being convinced that this was overly aggressive, that the prosecutors had been cowboys, and that this had damaged too many innocent people by throwing the Arthur Anderson employees out of work. And therefore, they decide not Literally, it's not policy, but they effectively decide, well, we can never indict another large company again. And this changes the culture and the attitude at the Department of Justice. The Enron investigation happened during the, the Bush years, and Bush was personally close to Ken Lay. How did Bush's Justice Department handle this, in your opinion? Very well, admirably. There are not many things I admire the Bush administration for, but if you look at this record, there were some old-fashioned law and order Republicans who believed that prosecuting bad actors in the capital markets and in business would preserve capitalism for the good good companies. 
And I'm talking about people like Bob Mueller, whose name listeners will know because he's now heading up the special counsel investigation into Donald Trump and his connections with Russia and questions about collusion. And uh, Larry Thompson, uh, (laughs) George W. Bush's first deputy attorney general uh, under Ashcroft. And both those guys started the Enron task force. And they actually present, they got some pushback from the politicos in the White House. And to combat that, they went to George W. Bush and said, let us present to you the kinds of cases we are building and the evidence that we're seeing at these companies, not just Enron, but many other companies. And after they presented that, Bush said, you guys go forward. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to interfere. This is shocking, and uh, I want you guys to prosecute these people. And so they took it very seriously and devoted the resources and time and made it a priority and stayed on the prosecutors and stayed on the offices that were doing the investigations. And that's one major reason why it was a success. Do you think these uh, weak corporate settlements extend or? industries that go beyond banking? Absolutely. And I, my argument is that this is not just a problem that plagues the banks and is not just something that comes solely from the financial crisis. It was building before this, and it persists today, and it covers industrial companies and retailers and tech companies and, um, uh, and pharmaceutical companies. And what we see is a a settlement regime where the Department of Justice prefers to enter settlements for money, sometimes large sums of money, and there are major problems with it. The two are the money doesn't come out of any executive pockets. It's paid by the shareholders. And the second thing is that the settlement regime does not work. It does not reform corporate behavior. What solutions do you recommend to get to more robust investigations leading to individual accountability? Well, I think that the Department of Justice has to change its culture wholesale in its approach to corporate law enforcement. And the first thing to do is to re-elevate prosecutions of individuals over settling with corporations. The policy has to be that they don't settle with corporations unless there are Um, extreme circumstances. Uh, And instead, they need to say, pieces of paper don't commit crimes, individuals commit crimes, and we're going to investigate, um, and not only investigate individuals, but investigate individuals to the highest level that we can. Um, go all the way up to the chain. Um, and what you saw in the prosecution of Enron, and I walk through this um, uh, narrative in my book, is that they painstakingly flipped lower-level executives to get to the top people. And we think of that to the extent that anybody remembers Enron. I think, it think people think it's inevitable that the top executives were prosecuted. But in fact, Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay, those executives, did not email. They did not have a lot of evidence, direct evidence against them. They didn't have wiretap evidence against them. Um, and uh, what they had to do is the old-fashioned kind of uh, way that we prosecute the mob. We flip the capos to get to the flip the soldiers to get to the capos to get to the capo di tutti capi. And uh, we need to elevate that. Um, that's one solution. Now, if you have the former enforcement director at the SEC, becoming a leading defense attorney. 
and that's mimicked over and over and over again. Don't you think that has an effect, if not on the end result, certainly on the process and on the ultimate settlements? I am profoundly worried about the revolving door. I don't think it is the sole problem here, but it is a major problem. And uh, it's twofold. One is that um, the Department of Justice and the SEC, uh, especially for the best of the SEC, um, they, it's a training ground for the young young lawyers um, who work in government for a little bit and then become future partners at uh, major white-collar law firms. It's not a job that people will choose as a career anymore um, many times, and that is a big problem because when they are negotiating these settlements, they're negotiating with their boss's uh, former boss, and they are auditioning to become a, pro- a partner at these law firms. And when you're auditioning, what you want to do is you do want to be impressive and very smart and show how wily and negotiator you are. But ultimately, these people want to be reasonable. They want to be um I want to perform like, uh, so as if the people across the table can envision them as future partners. Um, and uh, ultimately, when you want to be reasonable, that means that you're not going to make a very tough decision or to be overly aggressive, and you're going to stay within the norms of behavior. So you don't want you, to be accused. How do you deal with that? Way. Well, one thing you would do is you should pay prosecutors um, and top SAC lawyers a lot more money so that they can survive in the most expensive cities in the country, uh, you know, uh, New York and Washington, D.C., without having to um, go to big law firms. And I think a lot of people would be attracted if the prosecuting job was that, you know, was lucrative. It will never compete with the private sector, but one thing you could do is do that. The second thing is you have to have better rules about what the revolving door um, is. There are essentially no rules, uh, and the only rule is that you can't appear in before the Department of Justice for one year after um, you've left, and that's woefully inadequate. You should um, be prohibited from um, working on any matter that would touch on anything related to the Department of Justice or the SEC for many, many years, that would really hinder um, the revolving door. Um, and then, it's, you know, mainly it's cultural. It's they have to draw from different places. They have to hire plaintiff's lawyers and consumer lawyers, and they have to hire older lawyers from the white-collar bar who don't want to go back to white-collar work. Um, and if you have a diverse hiring strategy in age and professional experience and geographic diversity, you would sort of break this cycle, I think. If Dodd-Frank regulations are on the chopping block, what regulations would you argue be kept? Oh, I don't think that Dodd-Frank went far enough. I don't think we should put any of the Don Frank regulations on the chopping block. I'm very skeptical about that. In fact, I think we should go farther. The problem with Don Frank, in my view, was twofold. One is we didn't do anything to really change the regulatory architecture. Um, So we essentially preserved the uh, CFTC and the SEC and the Fed and the OCC um, and all these uh, differing regulators. And that sets up a lot of problems. And then the major problem is that we didn't do anything structural about the financial system. We didn't break up the banks. We didn't 
restore some kind of updated Glass-Steagall. We didn't uh, make the banks have a size requirement. And so essentially we've um, just tried to do a lot of very technical, very intelligent, precise regulations, finely tuned regulations, and it allows for too many exemptions and exceptions um, to be done in this sort of cloak of darkness where the public can't really see or understand. Do you draw a straight line directly from the lack of prosecutions of bankers after 2008 to the election of Donald Trump? No, I don't draw a straight line. I think that would be overly simplistic. But I think that it informed um, a deep-set feeling of anger and resentment. And the average person looked at the financial crisis and said no one was held accountable. And everyone understood that at a gut level. They could just see it for their own eyes. And there was no way to um, dispel that notion because it was true. No one was held accountable. And I think this made people deeply, profoundly angry. It makes me angry. Um, And Donald Trump took advantage of that. When he campaigned, he campaigned against Wall Street. He campaigned against Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton for being in the pocket of Goldman Sachs. And uh, it undermined Hillary and Obama. Obama was seen as not having gone hard enough on the banks, and um, Dodd-Frank was seen as weak because of that lack of accountability. Um, and I think that was a valid criticism. And, and Hillary Clinton, when she campaigned on tougher punishments for corporate executives, nobody believed her, in part because she'd given those speeches to Wall Street and she seen in the pocket of Wall Street. So that resonated with people. And I think um, if we had had a greater set of accountability, um, more people going to prison for the financial crisis, we um, top executives, we would have had a much more serious financial reform. And I think that it's entirely possible that we would not have Donald Trump as president. How do you think uh, Attorney General Sessions will treat investigations of financial crimes? I am deeply pessimistic. I'm a big critic of uh, Eric Holder, as you have heard, but I think Sessions will be an order of magnitude worse. And I I was saying earlier that there used to be an old-line Republican view, kind of a law-and-order view that um, addressed corporate crime seriously. And I don't think the Republican Party is motivated by that anymore, and I don't think Sessions is motivated by it. I think there will be a lot of neglect of corporate crime. I think what his priorities are, and we're assuming that Sessions will last the week, but with this administration, who knows? But if Sessions does last, I think he's going to already identify what his priorities are, which are reversing uh, a lot of the civil rights initiatives of the Obama administration and also resuming punishing nonviolent drug offenders um, and immigration crimes and gang-related crimes. And that's the focus of the Sessions DOJ, and I think corporate crime will not be a focus. And unfortunately, that means I think corporate crime will run amok. That's pretty general with a feeling about Sessions, but what about Robert Mueller? What do you know about him, and where do you think the Russia investigation is likely to go? 
I admire Mueller, um, and I've talked to a lot of his associates and people who have worked with him, um, and he's a serious prosecutor who is not daunted by complexity, um, and uh, I believe will he will act aggressively um, and thoroughly in this investigation. In fact, I think he may start to use techniques that the Department of Justice doesn't use anymore, um, but things that the type of things that they did in the Enron investigations, which were very aggressive techniques to put pressure on people to flip them. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if um, he gets a lot of criticism for looking like something like a cowboy. And I think he's going to weather that criticism and ignore it um, and go and follow the money to the crimes. And if the people in the Trump administration have committed crimes, uh, he will find it. You said that you expect the worst Department of Justice in our lifetimes. As an investigative group, what's the most important policy area that ProPublica will be watching? Well, we're spending an enormous amount of time watching the Trump administration change the face of the federal government regulatory apparatus. Now, you know, we think that Russia, of course, is a major story, and people have been focused on the personnel um, changes, Scaramucci and uh, Kelly, et cetera, and I think those are absolutely important stories, but we're focused in a different place. We are watching the Department of Justice transform the Civil Rights Division. We're watching the changes at the EPA and changes in the Interior Department and the Labor Department because the public is not really reading about that kind of stuff, not seeing as much of that. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning business and financial reporter, editor at the investigative journalism nonprofit ProPublica, and the author of a new book called and I can only say part of the title on radio, The Chicken, Expletive Deleted, Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Jesse Eisinger, thanks for joining us and sharing your insights. By the way, if any of you in the audience have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.